You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. So we are starting a brand new series right now entitled Beyond the Signs. This is about the miracles of Christ in the book of John. We're just going to focus on seven of them. Many times we are so fixated on the signs and the wonders that we encounter. And when we see them, we camp on them. But actually, signs point to something else. And that's why the series is all about saying beyond the signs. So let's go beyond the sign and the wonder and see the real message behind it. And if you're already on John chapter 2, we're going to be reading from verse 1 through 11. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you, for your word is indeed amazing. Your word Lord, it's beyond comprehension, Lord, but we thank you that you reveal your truth to us through your word. And Lord, your word says as well, the secret things belong to you, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And we thank you, God, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, not just by these signs, but you gave your one and only son so that those who put their faith in him shall never perish, but will have everlasting life. I pray that we would believe in the son of God, that we believe in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins, so that in him we may have life. Lord, we commit this sermon to you. Be glorified and speak to your people, Lord, for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just to give you a background, since we're starting this series, this obviously is from the book of John, and uh, the author of this book was John. It was John the Beloved, He was one of the original 12 disciples who later on became the apostles of the Lord. Jesus, of the 12, he had kind of like an inner circle of three. So he had Peter, James, and John. So those three. And John was in the inner circle. And it is said of the apostle John that he's called John the Beloved because he's the one who's really close to the Lord. I mean, he was the one who's always hanging out with Jesus If all the other disciples are having a grand time, having fun, he was having fun with the Lord. 
because he was really close. John is also the one who wrote the book of Revelation. So the Lord Jesus basically appeared to him, not in his earthly form, but revealed himself to him in his glorious state. That's why when John, who knew the Lord richly, was amazed at how the Lord Jesus is in his, all his glory. This book, he wrote this basically for the Jews, but also for everyone, whether they're believers or not. The purpose of this book is found almost at the end of his book. It has 21 chapters. John 20, verse 31 says there, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. He wrote everything so that we may believe that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. He was talking about eternal life here. So the story that we read actually took place at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So when he started, when he launched his ministry, so it was just a couple of days, he got baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, and then the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then John the Baptist basically proclaimed that he was the Lamb of God. And then after that, some of the disciples of John the Baptist joined Jesus. And so he had a little crew now. One of them was John. And so John was there. And the unique thing about the book of John is this. He never referred to himself here. He never called himself, I did this, or I was with the Lord. No, he referred to him as a third person, and he referred to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself in the story. So we never hear his name in the story. In this passage that we read, we have Jesus there with his disciples and with his mother, Mary, who was also interestingly not named. She was just referred to as the mother of Jesus, but we all know who the mother of Jesus was, right? Mary was not named. And then we also have all the people from Cana, probably, and uh, the married couple and their families. And they were in a feast. And weddings during their time, the festivities took about a week or two. How many of you are married? Remember your wedding day? After the reception, you're so glad it's over, right? And you've spent so much just for one day. Can you imagine if you live during their time? Customarily, you will celebrate with everybody in the community for two weeks. And you're going to have to feed everyone. You're going to have to give them food, refreshments. And part of their culture is drinking wine. This is the, basically the fermented juice from the grapevine. There are some issues here as we were reading this. Some of you were like, hmm, what's, what's this about? So actually this passage, this story, has been a little controversial in some pockets all throughout history, especially among mothers. When they read this and they hear Jesus speaking to his mother, calling her, woman, why do you involve me in this? And many times when we read it, we think, what? It's like, woman, why do you involve me here? And that's the thing, and that's why we misunderstand it, and some people get offended. But here's what I want us to understand and realize. This is an ancient book, ancient writings. And these were written for a specific audience at the time. But because this is also God's word, it's timeless, it also speaks to us. But everything that's written here from Genesis to Revelation, well, 
Revelation is still going to happen. Okay, but from Genesis up to Jude, these all happened already in the past. And they were written with certain cultural nuances that were perfectly understood during their time, but sometimes we miss. One generation you skip, this is what you call a generation gap, right? With parents and their kids. That's so 90s. I love playing 80s music. And it's a good thing my, my sons appreciate 80s music as well. But some people, what's that? So <laughs> Many times we approach the Bible in our reading without trying to understand the context of the stories and the narratives that we read. And we read it from our lens, from our cultural lens, from our cultural understanding, for how we understand words. And then we put in our understanding and try to interpret the Bible from our context. But what we need to learn, if we are going to be good stewards of the Word of God, is we have to learn to study the Word. We're not just here to read it and, and do devotional reading. Oh, that feels good. But actually, there's something deeper there that God wants us to. He wants us to discover His mind of truth and revelation. But there's a price to pay. We have to be disciplined in reading the Word. We have to learn how to read it from their eyes, from their context. It's incumbent upon us to really come to know and study the context of each book. It takes a lot of work, but when you do it, you'll have a deeper understanding of the Word of God, and you'll be able to handle it more accurately. Okay, that's why a lot of people today misinterpret the Word. And with every misinterpretation, they camp around it, and they make their own doctrines around that misapplication or misinterpretation. And that's why we have cults today. We need to be good stewards of the Word. We need to be good students of the Word so that we can get the most out of the Word. And we're not putting our pet ideologies and belief systems and try to fit the Word of God to our beliefs. Many times we read the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. And then we look for it there. Oh, there you go. That's it. And you try to fit it, but that's not what the Word of God is saying. So we're not supposed to read into the Scriptures. We're supposed to let the Scriptures speak to us. You know, let the Scriptures speak to us. It's meaning. It's important that we understand the context here. So when we talk about wine, that's part of their culture. If you go to Russia or Latvia in those cold countries, vodka is part of their staple meal. Because it's so cold, they need that. But... The bad side of that is they have too much of it. That's why there's a lot of drunk people there. Now, to understand this passage, we need to suspend as if that is really, really possible. But at least let's not try to interpret Scripture with how we understand things from our context. Okay, let's try to see, see it from their eyes. In the Bible, wine is one of the issues that we have. Wine? What? Jesus was... Drinking wine? What, what? What are we talking about here? He was in a party, and then they ran out of wine, and he made some more? What's the deal here? Come on now. I thought wine is, you know, wine is from the devil. Some of you remember that reference. And if we approach it that way, then that just tells us that we don't really understand what the Word of God says. Now, I'm not here to tell you, go and drink wine Drink and be merry. That's not what I'm saying here. 
again, there's something beyond what we normally see. And that's what we want to perceive here this morning. In the Bible, wine, and let me differentiate that from drunkenness. We're not talking about drunkenness or excessive consumption of wine. We're just talking about wine itself. In the Bible, wine, would you believe, is actually a sign of joy and of God's blessing. What? Are you kidding me? Read the Old Testament. And actually, you'll see references. But it doesn't also say that you can get drunk. That's what the Bible is against, drunkenness. So here, let me read to you a few things, a few passages. Now, lest you say, so Pastor says it's okay to be drinkers. It's okay to drink alcohol and everything. Now, I want you to go beyond that. Genesis 27, verse 28, so that you'll understand the context. Because, again, many times when people read this passage, this story that we read, they're fixated on the wine. They're fixated on how Jesus spoke to his mother. They don't see the real point of the story. That's why we're dealing with it now, so that we can get past those and get into the meat, get into what God's really saying to us through this story. Somebody taking wine. Passion says it's okay to please don't tweet that. Don't put that in your post. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Don't put words in my mouth. But here, Genesis 27, verse 28, says here, May God give you of the dew of, the, of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Genesis 27. This is a blessing that is spoken. Deuteronomy, the book of the law. Chapter 7, verse 13 says there, He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. That's referring to God who will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. Some of you can't wrap your mind around this. What? Many times we can't understand or we can't accept because we've been programmed by our culture in a certain way. Because in this culture, either you fully embrace wine and you go for drunkenness or you go, stay away. It's from the devil. There's some Christians, sad to say, who think everything is from the devil. They give the devil too much credit. He can't even create anything. Are you seeing this? Is this not the word of God? See it in context, okay? And that's why in Psalm 104, the psalmist, verses 14 and 15, said this, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Some of you are really having a hard time. And some of you are going, yes, preach some more, preach some more, preach some more. <laughs> God knows your hearts, Okay. <laughs> oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. How many of you have heard people here during the offering say, honor the Lord with your wealth? Have you heard that passage? We've heard that so many times, right? We only quote that passage, but we, let's quote it in its context. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10 says, there, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will what? 
be bursting with wine. Some of you are saying, hallelujah. <laughs> Again, we're just getting past this, okay? We're dealing with it now so that we can see the, the real story. So the point here is this. But also, there's a place that says there in Proverbs, beer is a brawler, wine is a mocker. What? I thought wine is blessing. You see, it's like taking this thing. This is a neutral thing, right? Neutral object. It's supposed to be used for good. But put it in the heart of a, of a man who has a bad heart, a sinful heart, a, a heart filled with rage and anger. You know, uh, he needs to go through anger management. Put this in the hand of a man who's really, really angry. This thing that's meant for good, what's going to happen to this? Right? You see, it depends now. You see, how many of you believe that money is the root of all kinds of evil? See, if you believe that, that you've misinterpreted or misunderstood what the Bible says. It's not money who's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money is a tool that can be used for blessing or even for cursing. So what changes? It's the heart of man. So now you see wine. You go, yes, hallelujah. Or you go, from the devil. Let's see it without excess, without any inordinate desire. So, Pastor, can you drink? It's up to you, but you know. It's up to you. You can choose. It's you're going to be standing before God. We don't know how you're going to be drunk and nobody knows it every night. And see, that's why it's important that you're governed by the Spirit of God, not by, can I do it? Can I do it? How close to the line can I stay without crossing over? That's the heart of man. A man's heart is deceitful above all things. That's why it needs to be saved. So we're talking about wine, but the Bible does say something about drunkenness. Too much wine. How much is too much? So what you need is the fruit of the Spirit that is called self-control. Some people say, yeah, well, I probably can drink wine, but do I really need to drink wine? Not really. So can I live without wine? I think I can live without wine. And if I decide to do that, then that's unto the Lord. But if somebody wants to drink wine as part of their meal, as long as they're just doing that and they're consistent, disciplined with it, they're going to stand before God. So we are not going to judge. But here's what the Word of God says about drunkenness. Galatians 5, 20, verse 5, verses 20 and 21. It says there, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, Orgies and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, there is a fine line there. So do you really want to be technical? You know, better be saved than sorry, right? It's up to you. Another issue that we see here, another thing that people have an issue with when they read this story is how Jesus treated his mother. I mean, this is Jesus, our standard. And he goes, woman, what does that have to do with me? I mean, is that really in the Bible? So some of you opened your Bible. Yes, it's there. And it's hard to grasp. 
it's hard to grasp because we interpret that from our lens, from our culture, from how we see things. And maybe when we read that phrase when Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with me? You're reading it from a caricature in your mind that kind of has an attitude. Woman? You get what I'm saying here? We're reading into the scriptures. Here's the second issue that people get stuck with in this passage that they don't get to the real story. It's Jesus' harshness towards Mary. I place question mark there and quote unquote enclose harshness with quotation marks. Because some people think he was harsh. Man, that was bad. That's your own mother. Let's look at that verse again. John 2 verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does this mean? Let's try to understand it from their context, from their time. Now remember, this is in English, right? You're reading an English translation of the Bible. Did Jesus speak in English? No, he didn't. This is a translation, and sometimes when you translate, things get lost in translation. And sometimes there are words that don't have any corresponding word that can be translated to in the other language. And so you try to get something that is close to it. So now let's look at what this word says in the Greek because this portion of the Bible was written in Greek. We're not going to do a Greek study. I just want you to see what this word meant at the time. So the Greek word for woman does not denote, actually, when you say woman, it does not denote any disrespect at all. Let's see. Today, when you hear the word woo, when you're wooing someone, what does that mean? You're pursuing someone, right? How many of you wooed someone just last month? Feb 14, you're trying to woo someone. And because you couldn't woo anyone, you said to yourself, woe is me. <laughs> so, what does woo mean today? Pursuing someone, right? Let's dial back probably about 200 years. You know the word woo is not just pursuing. It's pursuing for the purpose of marriage. And today, it's just pursuing for a relationship. Sometimes, uh, I don't know, not even a relationship. It's... Uh, Friendship with benefits, right? You see how words can get distilled and can deviate from their original meanings over time. And so here, when Jesus said woman, it's not the way we would address our mothers or elderly women today. It's not disrespect when that was used. Let me show you something. See, there's another scene where Mary was mentioned in the story. She was in the story. And that's in, that's in John 19 when Jesus was there at the cross and his mother was there together with John. And here's what Jesus said about to die. Remember, Jesus was Mary's, from an earthly perspective, Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And in the Israelite culture, if you're the firstborn, you get the double portion of the inheritance. But also as a firstborn, you take care of your Parents, especially if the patriarch is gone. Nothing is mentioned of Joseph here, so we assume Joseph had gone already. So it was Jesus who had that responsibility to make sure 
his earthly mother was taken care of. So, John was there. Everybody fled, but it was John and Mary right at the foot of Jesus while he was at the cross. He was dying. And here's what he said. When Jesus saw his mother while he was there hanging at the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said that in the most tender, loving, and compassionate manner. So you see, when he used woman, he wasn't disrespecting her. He was actually giving the due respects to do her. So here, woman, behold your son. And then he looked, he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Please take care of her. She's now your mother. And so Jesus turned his mother to the care of the disciple whom he loved. In the two instances, Mary was mentioned in John's story. She was referred to in both times as woman by Jesus. And it's both times he was respectful to her. You get it? Okay, so can we get past these things now? All right, so now the narrative is this. The situation, it was a wedding, and now there were festivities there. And then probably there were more people who came than invited. I mean, you know, that's trouble if you're the one hosting, right? And here, they ran out of wine. And wine is, you know, if you're going to the party, if you're going to the festivities, it's okay if you don't get to eat that much. But if there's wine, I'm good. Okay, because that's part of the celebration. Wine was part of their celebration. So they're celebrating the, you know, the marriage of this newlywed couple. And they ran out of wine. And in their culture, that was a cultural faux pas. In other words, that was embarrassing. You don't want that to happen. Because that's going to stick. And especially in a closely knit society like the Jewish society then, that's going to stick with the family and that's going to be stick against them. And Mary said to Jesus, there's no wine. They ran out of wine. And then Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with me? Some commentators say, what does that have to do with you and I? My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. You see, Mary understood who her son is. I mean, with all the immaculate conception and an angel appearing, she knew who this person was. She knew this was the Son of God, and he was born for a mission, and she's probably sensing this is the time. And she understood that. They don't have any wine. My time has not yet come. And then, notice Mary never got offended. She did not get offended with Jesus. And then after saying that, here's what she did. After Jesus said that to her, Mary turned to the servants and told them, do whatever he tells you. Just be ready. Do what he tells you to do. So was Mary just a guest? Those are not the words or those are not the actions of a guest. Those are the actions of someone who's involved in the hosting of that festivities. Probably there was a relative that got married. We don't know. But she was involved. She was involved. But after Mary said that and she left, we see Jesus doing a miracle. Wait a minute. He, he just said, it's not my time. And then right after his mother leaves, he performs the miracle. Mary didn't know what, what he was going to do. She just told him they ran out of wine. And many commentators say this, biblical scholars and Bible commentators say this, and they, a lot of them agree 
that Jesus was at that point. Remember, he already just launched his ministry. The Holy Spirit came upon him already, and he was proclaimed publicly by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. So he was launched in his ministry, and now he's having his disciples, but he hasn't performed any miracles yet. And now he's already on the mission of his father. And then now the woman, his mother, was kind of directing a bit. Could you do something already? Is it time? Do something. Bible commentators say that Jesus was not going to be directed by human authority. Because at that moment, he was fully under the father's authority who had already launched him into his mission why he became a man on this earth, why he was born. And these are people who are much more brilliant than I could ever be. So, and they've studied. I mean, they have PhDs on these. So, and a lot of them say that. So that's what they say. But that's not also the point of this story. Again, don't get sidetracked, okay? So here, I remember a time when God put it in my heart to help our church planting venture in Guam. I was living in Manila at the time. And I was planning on working for a company, and I was already on my last final interview with, with the vice president of the company. That was basically just formality. And then God begins to speak to me about going to Guam. When God spoke to me about that, I knew our church was going there. I didn't plan on going, but God spoke to me. So I said, okay, I have plans, but this is what God's saying. Many other plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. My will, his will. What will it be? Okay, Lord, I'm going for your will. And I told my dad, who was excited for me to have this job. I just fresh graduate from college. Then here, God saying, leave your father's house. Leave your country. <laughs> I will even go to the land. I haven't even seen Guam. It's an island in the Pacific. It can get drowned. So I told my dad, are you sure about that? So... He was emotional about it, and I was emotional too because I didn't want to break his heart. But when it came to a hit, you know, between man's will and God's will, I had to honor God's will. I honored my dad. I said, Dad, I know you want me to do this, and I want this, but I would have done that if God did not speak to me to go there. But he did, so I have to honor that. So he didn't understand at first, but later on he did. But the point here is this. I think that's where Jesus was at the time. And he didn't struggle. I struggled, but I don't think he did. He knew what he was about. He was about his father's business. And then, verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. This is for the cleansing. You know, the Jews, before they go to the temple or before you eat or before you, whatever, anything social, you have to do a ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial cleaning of your hands, and feet, so they have these big water jars, and they clean their hands. And especially when they go to the temple to give their offerings, they cleanse themselves. But you know, we all know that that kind of cleansing is just external, and it's temporary. It's not permanent. And then here, out of those jars that happened to be there during the festivities, they were meant for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons, Jesus said, fill them up with water. So they filled them up with water. Remember, they didn't have any more wine at this time. And then after they were filled up, Jesus said, draw from that jars 
and bring it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast tasted, wow! I mean, normally what we do is we give out the best wine first, and then when everybody's kind of drunk, then we roll out the bad ones. They're not going to tell the difference anyway. But here, you've saved the best for last. This is the best! The master of the feast didn't know where it came from, but the servants knew where it came from. And it's not indicated if they told them. But it was seen by the disciples, seen by Mary. Mary kind of expected it. John said, this, the first of his signs. We're going to park there in that verse, verse 11 in a bit. So, but I want to show you a few things here. Some thoughts. First, there was a parallel to Moses. Everything that happened here, as I was meditating on this verse and I was just silent before God. And so I was just asking the Holy Spirit, okay, Lord, lead me here. Where is this going? And I noticed there's a parallel, somewhat a parallel to Moses. You see, Moses was the intermediary of the Old Covenant. And Jesus, he is the intermediary of the New Covenant. Moses was a type of the Christ. And here's what happened. The first miracle Moses performed as he was confronting Pharaoh was this, is that water turned to blood. Water turned to blood. That's in Exodus 7. And then all throughout the 10 plagues, God was working in the hearts of the Israelites and also of Pharaoh and of all the Egyptians, preparing the Israelites for the Exodus. And that moment came, that last plague, the plague against the firstborn, it was about to happen. Here's what God said. Prepare a Passover lamb to be sacrificed. You know, sacrifice a Passover lamb. Today you will celebrate the Passover. This will be the day that you will be delivered from Egypt. You will celebrate this for all generations. What you're going to do here is you're going to sacrifice that Passover lamb and get the blood, put it on the doorpost of your home, so that when the time that I've appointed for the angel of death to come all throughout the land, the angel of death will kill basically all the firstborn in the entire land. But when he sees the blood on your doorpost, he will pass over you and spare your firstborn. That's how I will make a distinction between my people and the Egyptians, that they will know that I am God. So, Passover lamb, blood was shed, and because of that, there was deliverance. The exodus. Now, let's look at the parallel of this one we just saw here. So the parallel to Moses is here, Jesus. We know Jesus is, oh, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So with Jesus, his first miracle, he turned the water into something, but not blood. He turned it to wine. He turned it into wine. And as he went through, his ministry, three years, preparing for that moment where the apex of history, where the Christ will save humanity. At the eve of that moment of humanity's great deliverance, before he was going to be crucified, there was a Last Supper. And in that Last Supper, they had communion. And in that communion, they had the bread and the wine. And he said, Take this, all of you, and eat it. 
this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they ate the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the wine, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember this every time you drink this in remembrance of me. Remember what I'm going to do for you. And that was during the Passover. That was the Passover meal. The very event they were celebrating during the Last Supper was the Passover event of Exodus, where the Passover lamb was sacrificed and his blood, the blood of the lamb was shed. And an angel of death passed over. And then those in that house, covered by the blood, they were saved. Here, Jesus. Going back to John the Baptist. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just cover your sin. He takes away your sin by his precious blood that was going to be shed. And it was shed at the cross. And because of that, there was deliverance. Going back to the picture of the jars. These were jars for purification. They were meant to purify you. The religious system puts something in this idea of cleansing, but it does not really cleanse. But when Jesus came, he turned what was used for cleansing, kind of like saying, that's not good enough. That's man's attempt. He changed it into wine which is a prefigure, a picture of what he was going to do three years from that moment. And the wine actually turned out to be his blood that was shed. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28 says there, And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. He hasn't shed it yet, but he was holding the cup of the wine. Said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. For the forgiveness of sins. So as we are about to conclude, the question now is this. Why did John tell this story? Why did he include it in his gospel? I want us to look at the reason why he told the story and the result of that story. First, let's look at the reason. The reason is this, in John 2, verse 11, going back to John 2, 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. A sign, the word sign here in the Greek is semeon. We're not pronouncing it correctly, but we're close. Semeon. And semeon means... A marvelous event manifesting a supernatural act of a divine agent, often with an emphasis on communicating a message. How many of you have gone to Las Vegas? Road trip? You'll see signs there that says Las Vegas, right? And I'm just so amused all the time when people see that Las Vegas sign. They, they stop and they have a picture. This is nice, Las Vegas, woo! You know, I was, uh, it's not quite Las Vegas yet. <laughs> it tells you about Las Vegas, but it's not Las Vegas yet. That sign points you to where you're supposed to go. Last year, I went to attend the, uh, the Every Nation World Conference in Cape Town, South Africa. My flight, we passed through Amsterdam, so in the airport. I've never been to Europe. And I was like, would I be able to step on European soil? 
not just on the airport, I mean actual soil. And it turns out our airplane did not go to a, a tarmac or to a gate. We were there like 100 feet away from the, the airport and we we're going to be riding a bus. So, oh yes, I'm on European soil. <laughs> First time, yes. And then going back from Cape Town here, the airline, I'm not going to say the name, messed everything up and said, okay, sorry, the flight's messed up, so we need to put you in a hotel. Okay. I was told there's a hotel in, uh, in the airport in Amsterdam. Turns out the hotel was outside. I told him, I don't have a visa. I didn't apply. I don't have a visa. I'm sorry, sir. You just have to go through the immigration. And I explained to them, I'm sorry, I don't have a visa. Then why are you going out? The hotel. The airline, you know. Okay, let, let's work it out. We were able to work it out. So I was able to go. Amsterdam, baby. I was out to the airport doing my selfie. That big word, Amsterdam there. Woohoo! And then they took us 15 minutes away from Amsterdam. So did I see Amsterdam? No, just the airport. I didn't get to see all the beautiful buildings there. But I saw the sign. You see, signs point to something greater than itself. And Every time you see the word sign in the Bible referring to Simeon, it speaks of something miraculous, something supernatural, something powerful, a miracle. The raising of the dead, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, those are signs that point to something greater. You think that's great? That just tells you that the one performed that is the creator of all. And he's the promised Messiah. He's here already. But some people, oh, the sign. Woo-hoo-hoo. They miss the point. The purpose is for us to know who Jesus is. And John said this. This is the first of his many signs. And as we go through the book, you'll see. And these signs point to the reality of Christ. A greater reality than what we've ever known. No matter what your circumstances. No matter what you're feeling, no matter what, no matter if you're down and out, the Messiah has come and He can save you. And He has saved some of us. He's here. And so, second part of that verse, it says there, He manifested His glory. He revealed His glory. In those signs, Jesus was revealing His glory. And look, here's what John said. He revealed His glory. He's telling the story. Put yourself in John's shoes. Why was he telling that? Because he experienced the glory of God. He was there in the mountain of transfiguration. He was one of those three who witnessed Jesus transfigured. And they saw Moses and Elijah there. And Jesus in his glorious state. We've seen his glory. Eyewitness account. And here in John 1.14, in his introduction to the book, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See His revelation. The God of the universe, the God who created everything. He came to be a man. And He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The guests didn't know where the wine came from. But here's the result. The second part of verse 11. 
the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested in his glory. And his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Put their faith. Who perceived the glory of God during this time in the wedding? It was those whom he called. Let me tell you this. Jesus is already calling you to him. He will allow you to perceive his glory. Perceive it. And that's why you are able to be drawn near to Christ and to God. And he is able to change you. Because you've seen glory. As we end here. I turn to verse 31. Going back to the purpose. But these are written. These miracles are written. This account of Jesus with his miracles and his signs. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus is who He claims to be. question now is this. What will you do with the fact that Jesus is who He claims to be? What will you do with that fact? Are you going to maintain the way you live? Or are you going to surrender to Him? That's your choice now. Jesus is who He claims to be. Lord Jesus, Your death is what brought our salvation. Your death is what paid for our sins. And it's Your death that has made possible for us to have life in You. So we receive this juice which represents your blood and as we partake of it we declare that we are under your blood thank you for your supreme sacrifice on the cross we honor you we give you thanks lord jesus we thank you